understanding to apply this to our lives, not only talk about it, but to really put this into practice, Lord. And we stop and say thank you in your name. Amen. Please remember in our study through the book of Proverbs, here's our little introduction we've been doing every week. We're teaching about wisdom because Proverbs is the book on wisdom. Wisdom is God's way of thinking. And then you take knowledge and understanding, which is God's way of applying it and God's way of doing it. When you have God's way of thinking, God's way of applying it, and God's way of doing it, and you put in the fear of God in there, you've got a pretty good combination going on. And that's the goal, is to think like the Lord thinks, apply like the Lord applies, to understand as the Lord understands, and then have a working knowledge of what it means to have the all reverence and respect of the fear of God. The first nine chapters of Proverbs through the Spirit, Solomon laid the groundwork of what wisdom is. And then starting in chapters 10, he's doing these Proverbs. These are simple but yet profound truths. Just a sentence or two long that are quite simple to grasp, but then you chew on them and you think them and you see the depth of them. This is considered Hebrew poetry, and it uses a compare and a contrast idea as it normally does it. If you would take a look at Proverbs 12, verse 1, you see an example of that. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. You see there the balance of that, of loving instruction versus hating correction. Loves knowledge, yet is stupid. And you kind of see the idea there of what we're talking about. As we've said many times before, Proverbs is not deep on theology. It's not deep on end times. What it is deep on is daily practical God. Godly living, and that's what we need in this world today. So with that being said, we don't go necessarily verse by verse as we do these Proverbs in 12. We go topic by topic in chapter 12. We'll cover every verse, but we're going to jump around a little bit. And our bookends for this, Proverbs 12, 1 and 12, 28, say this. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Verse 28. In the way of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. That's your theme here for today. Loving instruction and choosing righteousness. If you are willing to listen to the instruction that God gives through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, your life will just go better. If you choose to live righteously, and remember, righteously means to live right, to do what is right in the sight of God, to do what is right in the eyes of the Bible. If you choose righteousness, that is a path that you want to be on. So with that being said, let's see what happens here. Verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. He who hates correction is stupid. Now, I don't know about you guys. At the Irvin household, we try not to use that word. And all of a sudden, the Bible uses it. So if Bible is allowed to use it, then aren't we allowed to use it? Well, you have to understand how the Bible is using that word. That word for stupid there in verse 1 is usually not the way we're using it in today's language. When we're using it in today's language, we're using it as such an insult. We're using it as such an idea that you are not mentally smart or capable Well, when it uses this in the Bible, it actually carries a different idea, a different connotation. It carries this idea of being brutish like an animal. That's what it actually means. So it's really saying in verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is like a brutish animal. What's a brutish animal? They're not thinking things through. They're not thinking about eternity. They're not stopping and saying, what glorifies God today? They're just thinking about what? Whatever pleases them at that moment, at that time, about food, about whatever. They are a brutish animal. Growing up on a farm, we grew up with sheep and then we grew up with pigs. And I can remember as a young kid when we had to load out pigs. And here I am, I'm probably, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 at the time, weighing maybe 75 pounds, and I'm taking on a 250-pound pig. But don't worry, they give you a piece of wood. That's what they give you to stop, the 250-pound pig. I wanted the little electrical thing that they used to zap them with. I never got a chance to use that. Those animals weren't thinking. They were just brutish animals. 
And what happens is this. When you allow just your flesh to take over you, and you're not thinking about eternity, and you're not thinking about what glorifies God, you're just thinking about pleasing yourself, the Bible says you're stupid. Meaning you're a brutish animal that's not thinking through the things of the Lord. That's what it's saying. So what's the opposite to that? Love instruction. Love instruction. Because when you hate it, it makes you a brutish animal. Let's talk about the idea of loving instruction. Can you go with me to 2 Timothy, please? 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy has always been a favorite of my books. Um, It is the book that uh, Paul wrote as his final book through the Spirit there. Paul is awaiting his death. And as he's writing this through the Spirit, he's writing it to his protege, Timothy, saying, these are the final things the Lord has given me to share with you. And it's just some great insight here on how we're supposed to go. So what's it mean to love instruction? 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Loving instruction is you know how to rightly divide the word of truth. That means you know and understand your Bible. You're here this morning, and you're going to take time right now and hopefully learn and understand your Bible. And I hope that blesses you. And I hope you take this and make now it a daily routine. Hope you get involved with maybe some of these small groups and make that a a routine of I want to rightly divide the word of truth. I don't know when this happened, but we became this society, especially here in America, where we are okay with as long as the pastor knows the Bible. And if the pastor knows the Bible, then that's okay. We're all supposed to understand and give a defense of the gospel. We're all supposed to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. And what happens is it takes time and energy to do that. And going back to our word there of stupid, brutish, animal-like. When we spend countless hours filling ourselves with something that has nothing to do with eternity, and it just feeds the flesh for a little bit, we're being very brutish and animal-like. For if we would stop and say, no, I'm going to take this time right now, and I'm going to be diligent to present myself to God. Diligent. Um, I had to get a, a new phone recently. And on my phone, it had this thing that keeps track of everything you do. And I'm a numbers guy. I just love numbers, love studying and analyzing numbers. And so it gives me this weak report. And I've only had this phone here for about a week. And so it gave me like a week or two report on what I have done and how much time I've spent on certain apps. And there was this one app I was looking at, and I was like, I spend over an hour a day on it. An hour a day learning how to knit. It was the strange... <laughs> Seriously, I was just right now thinking, what's the weirdest thing I could say right there? Because I know how this works. You guys are sitting, what's he spending an hour a day on? So I'm learning how to knit. I don't know. I've just made that up. That's, that's not of the spirit, folks. Um, but it, you stop and I look at that and I'm thinking, that's really how much time I do that? Yeah, I don't think about the time. And it actually breaks it down. It's like, well, three minutes here, nine minutes here. And it just starts to add up. And I just start thinking, too, how animalistic are we that sometimes we will sit and devote hours on end to something that has nothing absolutely to do with eternity in any way whatsoever. Now, guys, I understand there's a balance. I understand that God has also given us all things to richly enjoy and go be blessed. But at the same time, too, what would happen if we would say, wait, I really want to be able to love instruction and rightly divide the word of truth? What would happen if we would really look at 2 Timothy 3? Take a look at verse 16. All Scripture... If I really would believe from Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I would stop and realize the time I spend in this word is making me a stronger person, it's completing me, making me thoroughly equipped in God. And if we could understand that, oh man, we would stop and say, any free moment I have, I got a chance to grow. I got a chance to learn. I want to love 
instruction. Because when I love instruction, jump back to Proverbs 12 now. When I love instruction, I'll have wisdom. Look at verse 8. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse, a crooked heart, will be despised. Instruction brings wisdom. And you'll be commended for your wisdom. People will seek you out to talk to you to say, what do you think? Because they know that you will give the wisdom of God. And I cannot stress to you enough. When you are giving out wisdom, keep your opinions completely, utterly out of it. Give them scripture. Give them the Lord. Give them something that impacts eternity. Because one of the most dangerous statements is when someone comes up to you and says, hey, what do you think? Because there's a little bit of pride. They want to know what I think. No, it doesn't matter what I think. What does the Lord say on this situation? Here's the scripture, and let's get back to that. What else will happen if you love instruction? Look at verse 15, same chapter. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. You will love counsel. You will love being around other believers and stopping and saying, hey, what do you think the Lord wants us to do with this? You will pray about stuff. You will seek the Lord. Be careful of that solo island Christianity that you set yourself up with your own little wisdom, your own intellect, and your own take on everything. That's a dangerous place to be. We mentioned this last week because we went over Proverbs eleven fourteen of where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Surround yourself with godly people that are in the word, seeking the Lord, praying for you, and being led by the Spirit. That's the counsel you want. You don't want to know what that other co-worker at work thinks. That doesn't matter. What does God want me to do in this? Surround yourself with that counsel. What's the opposite of it? Verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. Counselors of peace have joy. Boy, do you see the difference in 20? If I'm not seeking counselors, I'm devising evil. Well, I mean, that can't be that extreme. kind of is. If I'm not seeking God and I'm not seeking his word and I'm not praying over it and I'm not really saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? That means I'm allowing my own heart to devise plans, which is evil. Because according to the book of Jeremiah, the heart is deceptively wicked above all things. Who can know the heart? I alone, the Lord, knows the heart. See, if I don't surround myself with God's word, I'll start fooling myself into thinking, well, this really must be what's best. Why? Because I have thought it through. I have talked to myself about it, and I have come to the conclusion with myself, this is the best answer for this situation. The most dangerous person you can talk to is yourself. The most dangerous person you can talk to is yourself. Be careful with those self-conversations. Get into the word. Seek that. You don't want to devise evil. Because what happens is you start thinking it through through. What happens when you're in the counsel of the righteous, though? Take a look at 21. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. No grave trouble, no harm. Now, if you're like me, the first time I read that, I said, well, that's not true, because I've known righteous people who have got themselves in trouble. I've known righteous people who have got themselves in harm. But the context of this is they didn't make the choice. Harm and trouble may have come their way because we live in an evil world with an evil person trying to do evil. But yet, if I am walking in God, I will not have harm and evil overtake me by my own devising and choosing. Take an example of David in the Bible, David and Bathsheba, what got him into trouble? His own choices. Take a look at Samson, what got Samson in trouble? His own choices. Now, as we mentioned last week, there's people like Joseph, there's people like Daniel that got themselves into trouble, but it's not by their choices. God used it for a greater, bigger purpose. And what's saying here in 21 is, when I do not devise evil in my heart and I am around counselors, no trouble will overtake me of my own doing. 
Take a look at 13. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. See, the righteous come through trouble. Why? Our mouths don't get us in trouble. Think back to how many times in life you got yourself in a problem. I bet your mouth had a lot to do with it. When you can keep your mouth shut, you'll stay out of trouble. Please remember, wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Watching our words is a maturity. And the way you know a mature person is they watch their words. They're not constantly criticizing. They're not constantly complaining. They're not constantly doing this or that. They watch what they say and they choose their words carefully in the Lord. Take a look at 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. See the opposite of 13. The wicked is ensnared by his lips. 14. The man is satisfied with the good fruit of his mouth. And the recompense, the reward of a man's hands will be rendered to him. We will get ourselves in trouble when we allow our mouth to get us in trouble. It is just, it will be a fact. And so therefore, we need to choose wisely our words. Choose to walk the path of righteousness. To stay out of trouble. You can see trouble coming. You can. I don't know if you're like me. Most of the time when I sin, I jump right in it. I, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I didn't see that one coming. No, I saw it coming, and I was ready for it. And I jumped. I am rewarded. I have the recompense of my hands because I knew better. I should have done it. I could have chosen wisely. Because when I'm righteous, remember, righteous doesn't mean perfect. Remember our verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You are here this morning. If you're born again and saved, you're righteous. I am righteous. I am right. That's all the word righteous means is to be made right in Christ. And since I have made right in Christ, I try to choose right. How do we choose right? Verse 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's a kindergarten verse. That's what you say to your kids when they're getting on the bus in the morning. Listen, choose your friends carefully. Don't go sit near Billy. You know what Billy will do. You guys know that. You've had those conversations. The way of the wicked leads them astray. So we teach our kids this from the beginning. Careful of who you choose your friends with. And we think it's some type of kindergarten, grade school problem. Guys, I know 40-year-olds that need to choose their friends better. And what happens is they get themselves in trouble. And so they're making stupid choices. They're out drinking things they shouldn't drink. They're smoking things they shouldn't smoke. And they come to me and they say, this is not how I want to live. And I say, okay, when does this happen? Well, I usually get around these guys and that's when it happens. Well, then don't go hang around those guys. Yeah, but they're my friends. And I feel like I'm back in kindergarten saying, they're really your friends? Because your friends would make you do those type of things? Your friends would be this or that? The Bible is telling you 3,000 years ago, choose your friends carefully. Careful who you allow to influence you. So often we hang around other people and they have an influence us. And what happens is that influence is not godly. Be careful who you allow to influence you. Does this mean that you never go around non-believers? No, I'm not saying that anyway whatsoever. You go be a light, you be a witness. But just be careful. If you find them influencing you spiritually to go downhill, you've got to really limit your time with them. Pray to be a witness. Pray to be strong. But I look at that verse one more time. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. So you see this theme of righteousness. And we want to be rooted in it. Solid in righteousness. Look at verse 3. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. One more, verse 12, please. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. You want to be rooted. Rooted. 
deep down, watered strong in the Lord. The Lord constantly refers to us as this seed, this plant that's growing. And you want to be rooted in it. Can you go with me to Matthew 13, please? Years ago, my boys uh, pulled up a plant outside. And it was a very nice plant, a very pretty plant that was not supposed to be pulled up. They pulled it up and they decided they were going to um, move it to a different location. And so as they pulled the plant up, they pulled it up and they set it on the ground and they just dumped water on it because they knew enough to water it. Go outside and I remember saying, what did you guys do? That's, Mom's not going to be happy about that. And they said, don't worry, we planted it. No, you set it on the ground. I see its roots and you dumped water on it. And their mind was planted. It's a plant, water, and dirt. I think a lot of times as Christians, we have the same idea. I'm, I'm rooted in the Lord. How are you rooted in the Lord? Didn't you see me at church Sunday? You know how many people come to church on Sunday that aren't rooted in the Lord? Didn't you know I served in the back? Doesn't make you rooted in the Lord. Makes you a warm body. I think we got to really understand what it means to be rooted in the Lord. This is an ongoing theme, not just in Proverbs. Take a look here at Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Take a look at uh, verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, remember that, they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Always let the Bible be its own commentary. Jump ahead to verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. There's no root. They are up and down all over the place. You see him for three weeks, then they disappear for three weeks. You see him for a month or two, and all of a sudden it sounds good, it sounds great, they're going to serve, get involved, and then they disappear for a month or two. There's no root. Well, I mean, they're coming to church here and there. They're getting involved with this or that. But if you could see them and look at them visually as a plant, they're a plant laying on top of the ground that gets water dumped on them. They're not getting solid in Christ. That's why it says in Colossians 2.7, you're supposed to be rooted and built up in Jesus. Rooted and built up in Jesus. Ephesians 3.17, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. If you're here today and that describes your walk with Christ, a couple weeks good, a couple weeks bad. Good month or two, bad month or two. I'm in a good season. I'm in a bad season. I have to stop and ask you, are you really rooted in Christ? I mean, you're here this morning, and I appreciate that more than you ever know. But I'm, I, I'm more concerned of what's going to happen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Are we allowing our roots to go deeper in the Lord? And how does those roots grow deeper? Guys, you know it. It's prayer. It's the word, worship, ministry, body of Christ. These are all things that we use to grow and go deeper in our walk in relationship with Christ. And if we don't allow those things into our lives, we are not rooting ourselves in the Lord. And we're going to get tossed to and fro, and we're going to wither. 
That's why the Bible is saying in the Old Testament and the Gospels and the New Testament, you've got to be rooted. And when you are rooted in the Lord, jump back now to Proverbs 12, please. When you're rooted in the Lord, verse 2, you're strong. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. You are having favor of God. That means God's blessing is on you, his pleasure, his delight. Now, that doesn't mean that you get whatever you want. See, some people look at favor, pleasure, and delight, and they just assume it's Christmas every day. That's not what it's saying. God says, my favor is on you so I can use you. Remember what we talked about a couple Sundays ago, Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But when you're delighting yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart are the desires of God. Because you're saying, I want to see the kingdom furthered. I want to see God glorified. It's not about me. It's about him. And so, therefore, God's favor is on me because I'm not trying to promote my kingdom, my agenda, but God's. I don't know how many times over the years people have come up to me and said, you know, I pray and pray and nothing ever happens. It never works out for me. Are you trying to push your agenda? Then you should be thankful that God said no to all those things. Because when you're pushing the Lord's agenda, saying, God, I want to see you glorified. I want to see souls get saved. I want my house and home to be a beacon for Jesus Christ. God says, that's what I want to put my favor on. That's what I want to bless because you are rooted and grounded in me. Please remember, you're not the root. Jesus Christ is the root. He's the one that grounds you. What happens when you start thinking it's you? Pride comes in. Take a look at verse 9. Better is the one who is slighted but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. You guys all know people that like to honor themselves. Some translations say self-important. Pretend to be someone. It's all about them. It's not about Jesus Christ. It's all about them. Verse 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of a fool proclaims foolishness. They just proclaim foolishness. When you talk to them... They just want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about what's going on in their life. They just want to talk about everything that is foolishness and honoring themselves. I I would love to go back and spend a day with Jesus. Not to just spend a day with Jesus. I have all of eternity to spend with him. But I want to see how he handled these people that can't stop talking about themselves. You know that. And like you start talking to them, they just hijack the conversation. And next thing you know, it's all about them and honoring themselves and self-important. And they're just proclaiming foolishness. And you just try to bring it back to God. And you just can't. So I, I try sometimes, as soon as I see them, I'll stop and say, Hey, Fred, good to see you. What is the Lord doing in your life? I try to bring up the Lord right away from the beginning. Fred, what's the Lord doing in your life this week? This week, obviously the Lord wasn't doing a lot because my week was awful. Let me tell you about it. And it's just like you try and you can't get them past honoring themselves. I want you to think about what you think about and talk about. I want you to think about that. Because verse 23, are you proclaiming foolishness or concealing knowledge? Now, concealing knowledge doesn't mean that you're hiding knowledge. Concealing knowledge, it literally means you're not making a show of it. You know what to say, when to say, and how to say it. You don't hijack conversations. You let God get the glory. But the problem is this. When we're proclaiming foolishness, there's just a lot of superficial nothingness. Take a look at verse 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows vain things is devoid of understanding. Vain things, superficial things, some translations, chasing fantasies. There is no focus on eternity. Now, they'll get excited. They'll get excited about the game yesterday. They'll get excited about the game Friday. They'll get excited about vacations. They'll get excited about all these worldly events. You'll see their eyes light up, and they'll talk for a half hour in analyzing it. 
But when it comes to the Lord, there's nothing on eternity in any way whatsoever. I'm just asking you, how much of our time, our words, is spent on vain, superficial, chasing fantasies? What would happen if we'd stop and say, Lord, I really want to have a focus on eternity? Look at verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. What do you think about? Maybe I don't want to know, but what do you think about? What controls your mind and you think and you analyze about? I I hope it's eternity. That's where we're going to spend eternity. It's in heaven. Colossians 3 says this. Set your mind on things above, not on earth. Fix your mind on things above. If we keep an eternal perspective, how powerful is that? Thoughts are so absolutely powerful. They are. If you're thinking about the Lord and thinking of Him and praising Him and growing deeper, I tell you, your day goes better, it just does. But if you're just going to think about everything that's wrong and your life is wrong and your health is wrong and your marriage is wrong and your job is wrong, where do you think your mind's going to go? Take a look at verse 5 again. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. It's deceitful. It fools you into thinking about this and analyzing it. And woe is me. Look at verse 6 then. The words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. Words of the wicked cause problems, but yet the words of the upright deliver them. And one more, verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Wicked overthrown, righteous stand. See, guys, verse 7. If you want your house to stand... Go back to verse 5, have your thoughts be righteous. Go back to verse 6, have your words be righteous. Then verse 7, your house will stand. See, so often we want our houses to stand in the Lord, but we don't want our thoughts to be on the Lord, and we don't want our words to be on the Lord. We want this quick, simple, easy fix. If you want your house to be different for God, then your thoughts have to be different and your words have to be different. Because if you have any influence at home of any kids or grandkids, they pick up how you act. One of my boys was contacting someone the other day, and he was typing something out. And uh, he showed it to me, and one of the things he typed out was this idea of, uh, in the whole scheme of eternity in heaven and hell, it really doesn't matter. And I thought, now, where'd you get that from? You didn't get that from your mom. You got that from your dad. That's where you got that from. Because that, that's a phrase we use all the time. Something happens at home, and everything's falling apart, and we're all getting worked up in drama. Okay, guys, stop. The whole scheme of heaven and hell doesn't matter we got to let it go. If our thoughts are there, and then our words are there, then our house will be there. It's a lot of work to do. Because what happens is words usually go the other way. Look at verse 18. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, and the tongue of the wise promotes hell. Their words attack like a sword, and they hurt. I'm just asking you, think of your words. Look at verse 18 one more time. Are your words like a piercing of a sword, or is your tongue promoting health? Are you equipping people or whipping people? Are you edifying people or are you discouraging people? Remember our phrases on words. We say this all the time. You pray over it. You speak to them alone. You speak the truth in love with the goal of equipping, not whipping, and encouraging and not discouraging. Are your words health or sword? Now, here's the problem. You know if someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you be honest with me? They really don't want you to be honest with them. You know that. But if you would go up to somebody and really say, would you be honest with me? Do my words... Are they a sword or are they health? Now, to be quite honest, it probably depends who you're around. We'll be around complete strangers and we'll speak words of health to them. But the closer we get to our inner circle, man, I have seen people speak the sweetest words to people they've never met and then tear their spouse apart and their kids apart. What would happen if we always try to promote health? 
Always stop and say, listen, I want to see you grow and go deeper in the Lord. I'll speak truth to you, but I'm going to make sure it's in love because I don't want my words to be a sword. I want to have self-control with what I say. Look at verse 16. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. A fool's wrath. So you, you, you get upset right away. Do you know people like that? Soon as something happens, they're immediately upset. They're immediately bothered. They have to immediately say what they think and what they feel and their opinion and they're upset. Verse 16, they're a fool. And a fool is a pretty harsh word in the Bible. It's one of the worst words you can call somebody. If you have no self-control with your words, you are a fool. Because Joe's words are a sword that's destroying people. And God says, no, have self-control. It doesn't mean you don't speak truth. Look at 17. He who speaks truth declares righteousness. Speak right things but a false witness to see. Look at 19. The truthful lips shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Take a look here at 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Speak truth, but do it in love. Promote health to those that need health. Because when you allow your words to get in there, it destroys you. Take a look at 25. Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Where does depression come from? Now, I have to say this real quick. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not here to speak on chemical imbalances or clinical depression. No, I'm not going to say anything like that. I'm talking about situational depression, where there's a situation in your life that depresses you. And it's going to happen to you, every single one of you. You're going to get depressed. It's going to. Where does that come from? Verse 25, anxiety. Anxiety, the idea of fear. That idea of worry, that idea of nervousness, you keep dwelling on the situation. And so as you keep dwelling on what's wrong, it causes depression. You're worshiping it. Now you say, no, I'm not worshiping it. But that's what that word actually means. That idea of depression, it means way down. Where we get the idea of bowing down. You are worshiping that problem. You'd say, well, it sure doesn't feel like it. What does it mean to worship? Worship means that's what you give your time and attention to. If you have a hobby that that's all you think about and you want to do, you are worshiping that hobby. You may not be making a little idol and going down on your knee and singing praise songs, but you're worshiping it. Some people worship their children. Some people worship their spouse. Some people worship Christian ministry. You're bowing down to it because it takes all your time. So therefore, when you have a situation that is causing you worry, fear, and anxiety and making you depressed, you are worshiping that situation. Because you're saying, I'm spending all my time focused on the situation and not the Savior. And if you keep your eyes on the situation and not the Savior, you will get depressed. You will get depressed. That's why in 25, a good word makes it glad. We've got to move quickly here because we're almost done. Can you go with me to 1 Kings 19, please? 1 Kings 19. Once we're done with this point, I just got two quick points and one more medium-sized point and we're done. Medium really means big, but I didn't want you to get too worked up. 1 Kings 19. You all know people that are depressed. You all know people that are discouraged. And anxiety in the heart of the man is causing depression. What are we supposed to do with them? First Kings 19, please. Real quick, and i got to make this quick. Uh, we're talking about Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, if not the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He was the one that showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, First Kings 19. The previous two chapters, he had just proclaimed a drought. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal. He is on a great victory swing. And then there's this woman, Jezebel, that shows up. Verse 2 of 1 Kings 19. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Meaning, I'm putting a hit out on you, Elijah. I want you dead. 
The man that could call fire down from heaven, proclaim a drought, and kill the prophets of Baal, verse 3, runs for his life. Fear, worry, anxiety. Verse 4 goes into the day's journey into the wilderness, sits down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is the great prophet Elijah. I just want to die. My life is awful. My life is miserable. My health is. My job is. My marriage is. Everything's awful. I just want to die. What does God do? Verse 5, angel shows up because he's sleeping. The sleep of depression. Be careful of that. He's sleeping. Verse 5, arise. Eat. One translation just simply says, get up. Now, that doesn't sound like real words of encouragement. But I've learned over the years, when I start dealing with somebody who's battling that darkness, i got to tell them to get up. Come on, get up. Let's go do a hospital visit together. Hey, get up. Let's go grab a bite together. Hey, get up. I want you to read this passage that I just found here. Get up. I can't let you just sit there under the broom tree and sleep and whine and moan and complain. No, you got to get up. You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross for you to sit there and whine and moan and complain. People are dying and going to hell. It's time to get up. Now, that may not sound like a good word in due season, but that's what we got to do. Rise. Get up. And you're saying, no, you don't understand. You don't understand how difficult it is for them. I'll talk to you about it on the way to the hospital visit. I'll talk to you about it while we're eating and getting you up and moving. I'll talk to you about it as we're reading through the Bible together. So what does he do? Verse 6, he gets up and he goes back to bed. Because that's what we're going to do. There's no reason to be awake. There's no reason to do anything. Verse 7, comes back. Get up. Arise and eat. I got plans for you. You got to get moving here, Elijah. Now's not the time to stop. So he goes into a cave. He spends the night there. And in verse 9, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And verse 10 is one of the whiniest verses in the entire Bible. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Everything is wrong. I am the only one left. Verse 11, God says, go out and stand on the mountain. And God goes by, verse 11, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind torn to the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still small voice. See, here's the problem. You've got to learn to listen for the still small voice. If you're waiting for the heavens to part and the rainbow to come down and bluebirds to land on your shoulders, that ain't going to happen. But what's going to happen is the Lord's going to speak to you through his Holy Spirit, through prayer, through worship, through the body of Christ, through the word. And he's going to say then the same thing, verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? No, verse 14 is the same as verse 10. But I think verse 10 is whiny. I think verse 14 is purpose now. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. I think he says, yeah, I get it now. I'm going to go out there and fight. Please remember what Paul said about his thorn in the flesh. He says that God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. If you are here and you are going through darkness, the best advice I can give you is get up. And you may say, I've tried. I know. Let us try with you. Let us speak you a word in good season that makes you glad. Let's go do something together. Let's go do some ministry together. Let's get our eyes off the situation and get our eyes on the Savior. Because with that darkness, it weighs you down. And next thing you know, you're worshiping it. Because that's all you're thinking about. we got to make this quick. Two quick points. 24 and 27. The Bible continually speaks against being lazy. 
24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. 27, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. God did not die on the cross for us just to sit here and twiddle our thumbs. Let's get out there, impact eternity through the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 12, 10, parents, grandparents, if you have kids at home and they're not feeding and watering their sweet little pet, look at Proverbs 12, 10. A righteous man regards the life of his animal. But the tender mercies of the worker are cruel. That's a great verse to teach kids. You take care of what God has given you and you got a responsibility for it. Last point, please. Verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. See, it's a good thing we only got a couple minutes on that one. Um, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Jump back to uh, chapter 11 real quick and remind yourself of 22 that we didn't cover last week. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. You don't see that on a lot of uh, marriage bulletins, do you? You don't really see that verse. Um, There can be a woman that's physically attractive, but she's spiritually ugly. And that's what we're talking about. We spend so much time as a society making sure the outside looks good when really inside it's an absolute ugly mess. Absolute ugly mess. And we judge everything on the outside. Take a look at four one more time. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Excellent, depending on translation. Virtuous, worthy, noble. It's the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. You've heard me say before, marriage can either be heaven on earth or it can be hell on earth. It can be the greatest thing next to salvation that God has given you or it can be the worst thing you've ever experienced. When you have a biblical marriage done right in the Lord, it is a blessing. It doesn't mean the enemy doesn't attack, but it is a blessing. Guys, I want you to look at verse 4, and I want you to look at your wife as your crown, as that thing you treasure. Women, I want you to look at verse 4 and say, that's the woman I want to be. I want to be the virtuous, worthy, excellent, noble wife. The problem is normally this. The woman says, well, I would be the virtuous, worthy, excellent, noble wife if my husband would treasure me. And then the husband says, well, if she was more treasurable, I would treasure her. So you just basically wait for the other person to change before you try doing your roles. How'd you just got to stop? Women, be virtuous, worthy, excellent, and noble. Men, treasure them. This is why I want to finish with, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is our last verse. It's going to take us 20 minutes, but it's our last verse. I was asking Dawn last night, I said, I'm going to teach on marriage. And I have this thing I do with Dawn all the time, saying, would you marry me? Would you marry me? And she always says, no. That's, that's a deeper issue. So I asked her last night, I said, why, why did you marry me? She goes, because you pay the bills. That's what she said. <laughs> One of my favorite Dawn stories, you have to understand Dawn's straightforwardness. We were getting ready to walk into Lowe's years ago, and Lowe's was getting ready to close. And we only had a couple minutes to get in, grab it, and go. And as we're walking in, she made some comment and I, I just went with it. I was going to make some silly little comment back to it, and I did. I thought it was really funny. I find myself very funny. Um, she looked at me. She goes, don't be stupid. I don't have time for stupid. That's exactly, that's Dawn in a nutshell right there. Don't be stupid. I don't have time for stupid. Uh, 1 Peter 3. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters you are if you do good and not afraid with any terror. Real quick, I mean this real quick. Ladies, 
Um, take a look at verse 1. You got a husband that's not as deep as you want him to be. You got a husband that's not saved. Let your conduct influence him. Let your conduct influence him. That's what it's saying there. They're going to observe you in verse 2, your conduct accompanied by godly fear. Verses 3 and 4, I know women that will spend I don't know how much time making sure they look great before they go out in public. But verse 4, they don't worry at all about their inner spiritual woman. What matters most is verse 4. The incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Ladies, work on that. Become that woman of God that's virtuous, worthy, excellent, and noble. Influence your husband. Instead of sitting here just saying, this is everything they do wrong, I know they're wrong. Go influence them for Christ. Now, before you ladies think I'm picking on just you, look at 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, dwell with them with understanding. Why does it say understanding? Because we've got to learn to communicate better with our wives. We need to have more patience as we talk to them. We need to be able to utilize words better and talk to them because we need to have understanding. They're not Bill from work that smells like grease, so don't treat them like Bill from work that smells like grease. Honor them. Giving honor to the wife. Let the woman know she is virtuous, worthy, excellent, and noble. That next to salvation is the greatest gift God has given you. Realize she is the weaker vessel. Now, what's it mean to be the weaker vessel? Imagine that your family came over on the Mayflower and you had this family heirloom that was fragile and beautiful and amazing and you had to move. You would move that thing with towels and blankets and pillows and you would keep it special and safe. What would happen if we look at our wives as something that is this amazing vessel that God gave us? And I want to keep you safe and protect you and watch out for you. I want to be heirs together of the grace of life. You're not only my wife, you're my sister in Christ. So therefore, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to lead you spiritually. I'm going to go to church with you. And men, look at the last one, that your prayers may not be hindered. When I mistreat my wife, I'm sinning. I'm sinning. There was a situation years ago where uh, Dawn and I did not see eye to eye on something. I was sitting outside someone's house getting ready to go in and minister to them. And as I was getting ready to go in and minister there, I'm praying, saying, Lord, give me the words of wisdom. And that verse came to mind. And God says, wait a second. You want my wisdom, guidance, and direction now to go minister to them. But until you get this right with Dawn, your prayers are going to be hindered. And I remember contacting her saying, listen, I'm only contacting you because my prayers are hindered at this time. And I really need to go minister appropriately. So can we get this figured out? I take that verse seriously. I do. That, that if I mistreat her, I wonder why my, my spiritual life is a mess. Sometimes guys come to me and they're like, spiritual life is a mess. How are you doing with your wife? Oh, don't even go there. Yeah, let's go there. Because if you're not where you're supposed to be with her, your spiritual life's going to be a mess. Worship team, if we come forward here for the final song.